On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about infrastructure in the city of Hamilton and what we can afford. We're going to be talking, speaking of what we can afford, about the federal government's spending plans. What are the risks looming down the road, depending on how much we as a country decide to go into debt and into deficit? And we're going to talk to the son of the guy who created the most insanely crazy, dangerous, wild amusement park in history, author of a new book about it that is, by the way, very hilarious. We're going to talk about Action Park. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There are roughly, give or take, 20,000 homes in Hamilton that still have lead pipes bringing their water into the house. I, I mean, I don't know how many people now we have as an average family or size per household, but let's say 60, 80,000 people in the city who still have lead pipes. Now, a plan has been in place for a while to change all these pipes over to copper pipes. That's going to take 25 years. At least that's how the plan has been set up so far in the city. It's going to cost not a small amount of money, something like $103 million to do that over those 25 years. But now a councillor, and not just, I don't think one councillor, wants to see this plan expedited for, I think, reasons that a lot of people would say make some sense, which is health. The question is, or the catch is, I suppose, that the cost to expedite this, and instead of doing it over 25 years, to do it in 10 years, significantly increases the cost. Let me bring in the councillor who proposed this first. It's Ward 4 councillor Sam Marula, who joins us. Sam, thanks for doing this today. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. I don't think anyone probably misunderstands why this needs to be done. There's health risks with lead pipes, and I I don't think anyone's arguing against the idea of it. The question is, can we afford in the city right now with the budget problems that we have and the challenges and everything else, can we afford to pay more to make this happen? Well, I think most people would want to pay more. Um, Again, uh, governance is all about needs and wants, and uh, again, there's nothing quite more important than water um, when we're talking about the services that we provide. So I, I know that um, if, if given the opportunity, people would be willing to pay more to expedite it. Uh, the question is, how can we put that plan together uh, to expedite it? And the issue is really focused on the water rates rather than the general levy. So that's a, an important and salient distinction uh, when you elaborate on this discussion and that it'll be related to water usage as opposed to your taxes. All right, because that's one of the things that was mentioned, I think, by you uh, in this discussion was that this can be done without nailing people on their tax rates. So if it's on water rates, uh, does that just mean that everyone across the city is going to have higher rates or the people who are having this done get higher rates or how would that work? Whoever whoever uses the water system would pay into it, right? So it would be based on water rates, no different than hydro rates or your cable rates. Um, whatever water you use, the the usage will reflect a certain amount of money, and uh, you'll pay as you go. Not as, you to know, we're on a meter system, right? Right. I, absolutely. I remember when I bought my first house with my wife, we had no meter and had to get one in lickety split. So I do remember that uh, that we are on the meter system. Yeah. Um, d- d- is that not parsing the point a little bit though? When we say we're not going to hit you with property taxes, everyone has to use water though. So either way, I mean, it's, like it's an essential thing to get the pipes done, but the increased cost, ultimately it's going to be paid by everybody. Well, of course. Um, but again, people want to pay for this. I don't know anyone that doesn't isn't willing to pay a little bit more for this. So it's a non-issue when it comes to wanting to pay for it. Uh, the question really is, 
how much will that impact be and can it be absorbed and how do we mitigate absorbing it but i think if you were to ask the vast majority of the public um i think it would be close to 100 percent. there's again uh, next to air uh, water uh, is is what sustains life and there's nothing much more important than what we deliver the, the difference between the 10-year plan and the 25-year plan that is already in place and already being worked on, I guess, uh, is about $30 million. Uh, I mean, it's not a small amount of money, um, but are you looking at this in the sense that, well, it's $30 million and that's spread over 10 years, so $3 million a year, we can, we can live with that? Well, I've also asked for a five-year option. So we're also going out to the provincial and federal government because Bob Bertina, um, and it would be remiss of me not to mention Back in the day, he was, well, as a counselor and then mayor, he really did champion this issue and bring it to the forefront for a number of us. Now at, uh, at Ottawa, he's also attempting to champion this, but not in isolation. Hamilton, as you know, being in government, they need a national uh, strategy, and, but that's being worked on. I know that uh, Philomena Tassi, who's a local minister, is also very supportive. And I know Donna Skelly is very supportive and, and understands at the provincial level um, how significant and how important this issue is. So we have buy-in from all over the government, including the public. The question is, how can we basically execute a plan to expedite it? So we, need, we know what we need to do. We know what we want to do it. Uh, the question is, how do we do it? Uh, if just, this is probably a stupid thing to ask, but I'm assuming when we talk about this, this is included in the $3 billion or so infrastructure deficit that we always hear about with that the city has, that this total yeah, is not course. a new and, thing. And, this is, this is caught up billion, in that. Again, that $3 billion number is, is really taken out of context. So, and I've asked for, for this for a number of years, but it's very difficult to do. So it, let's, let's bring it down or deduce it down to a house. Okay. So that $3 billion doesn't incorporate emergency repairs. What that $3 billion represents is life cycle. So we have a number of infrastructure that is beyond this life cycle. It doesn't mean it's unsafe. It doesn't mean it needs to be changed. It's just outside of that life cycle. You know, when you have that expired cereal, it's that kind of stuff. The cereal's still good to eat, unless, of course, someone gets in there and gets contaminated of some kind. But it's just because it's outside of the life cycle doesn't mean it's that imminent. I know people make it into like the sky's falling, but folks, it's not. Uh, and what we need to do is just chip away at it, right? But again, um, people want to make much greater headlines than than anything else. So I just tried to clear the air on that issue. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Sam, just before the break, we were talking about the infrastructure and whether the, however we want to break down or define the infrastructure deficit, how many other things are there? I mean, this is an obvious one. If, if people were to look through the list of things that have to be updated, how many others would you say are on that list that you would consider urgent kind of things like this? Okay, and so this wouldn't be considered urgent per se, uh, because we're, there are hundreds, if not thousands of cities in the same situation. And we've moved the yardsticks significantly in mitigating this problem. And we continue to apply 
even chemical additives uh, to the process to mitigate this issue. So there isn't any concern regarding a lead in, in an urgent uh, manner, but there are traces of lead that, that need to be uh, dealt with, particularly if you don't run your water. So the real message in this discussion should be, how can we presently, without changing anything, mitigate the lead issue? Just run your water uh, first thing in the morning for a few minutes uh, before you use it, and, and that in itself uh, will mitigate it. So nothing to be concerned about from a public health perspective, or else we, we wouldn't be having this discussion, we wouldn't be supplying the water if there was a public health issue per se. Having said that, because of the trace amount, and with children particularly, that's the, that's the public health issue. And that's what we need to focus in on, and that's why we need to eliminate it. And that's clearly the universal problem, is the during the formative years, consuming even trace amounts of lead can contribute to public health issues. So that's really the primary focus. But before we change the pipes, just run the water every morning. Having said that, we're now moving forward on the on all of our infrastructure renewal, and I think it's important, and I've asked staff in the past to really focus in on what is considered to be urgent. So what I even use as an analogy would be a red light, a yellow light, or a green light. So the red light being an alert, a, a yield, meaning, you know, we're getting to a point where this is going to need to be changed, or a green light where everything is fine. But people need to realize, before the break, as I mentioned, you look at your home, I live in a home that was built in 1919. Although I've, I've renovated and I've provided additions and so on, there are still items in that house that are from 1919 that have never been replaced. Although, technically, they're outside of the life cycle and would be considered a deficit. But why would I change something that's not broken is the question. So they'd lump all of that in to that $3 billion. Sure, it's, sure. To me, but, but how to, many of those things? That distorts the entire amount. Okay, so for, for the sake of argument right now, or for the sake of discussion, it's not really an argument, let's just leave the three billion out. But of the yeah. things that the city wants to or needs or should at some point update in the infrastructure, how many of those areas or things would you say fall into the red light area right now? How many things are pressing at this moment? According to staff, and I've asked this question, and we've asked for reports accordingly, but because of the monolithic nature of that uh, I guess, project of divining that at this point, if something breaks, we replace it. Mm. Nothing else is in the category of a public health issue. There's nothing that we are doing right now that in any way endangers public health. The question becomes on an accumulative aspect over a number of years and dealing with a target population of children in their formative years, clearly there's scientific evidence to conclude that there's a correlation between lead and developmental issues, hence the reason why we need to expedite this. So this is not a universal public issue, health issue, it's right. really a target audience. The other obstacle perhaps that is here, and I think you and I have talked about this before, it's certainly been very public. Um, is that we know that the city dodged a bit of a financial bullet a few months ago when the province and federal government gave some money to help with COVID and with the huge, I think it was like a 60, $62 million deficit the city was running because of deficit. Nothing they could have predicted, nothing you guys could have anticipated. It just, it, it fell into your lap. Um, thankfully, most of that money has been taken away or, you know, whatever, but there has been talk that, you know, if this thing persists, if the COVID situation drags well into next year, we could be looking at another number 
that rises up into the tens of millions of dollars. Does having that hanging over our head as a possibility change anything when it comes to these projects and, and where we're going to spend our money? We really, we have to keep it obviously in the back of our mind, but we can't really focus or change our strategy to such an extent that we can't govern any longer. We, we, we gotta, the show has got to go on. We got to continue governing, continue living and providing services. The, the COVID situation, and, and we really didn't dodge a bullet per se. I think the world at this point, we're living in an experiment. So we, we really don't know what the ultimate outcome and effect will be of any of these decisions that are being made at the federal, provincial, or municipal level, because we've never done it before. Uh, and the experiment is both economic development and economic, plus the the experiment of the COVID issue itself and all of the all of the uh, strategies that they've incorporated for us and the standards that they've created for us to just simply live day to day now to protect ourselves. So all of these things are in flux. We're living in this really unprecedented time. So obviously, we're all in this together at all levels of government and, frankly, every country in the world. So the answer to the question is, I think we really are a, a drop in the bucket compared to the real challenge that federal and provincial governments have. And as long as they have their ships in order, uh, we should be okay because we are a creation of the province. We really, We're really insignificant in the sense that we don't matter as a municipality. We only exist because the province allows us to exist. Hence, um, the province and the federal government, they need to get their ship in order and everything else will be fine. And I know that Sam Rula just said ship in order. That's <laughs> With correct. a P. <laughs> ship, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Council Rula, yeah. thank, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, no my pleasure. Thanks, Scott. Mind take a break. It is probable that I could be using the other, the other <laughs> as an alternative. That's why I was clarifying. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. A very highly regarded Canadian economist has thrown down a pretty serious warning to the federal government about its plans to embark on a spending spree, which we heard generalities of in the throne speech. Uh, I mean, the, the plans, what they wanted to do were laid out, but the costs weren't all laid out. But most everyone who started in their mind anyway, or with a pencil tallying, the numbers of the projects started to get into some incredible numbers. Some estimates have it as a hundred billion dollars a year deficit kind of numbers to run these programs that are being suggested. But this economist um, says a number of things could happen as a result of this. If we go to those numbers, if we go to those deficits, there's a number of things that could be waiting for us, for our economy, and none of them are particularly appetizing. Don Drummond is the Stouffer Dunning Fellow and Adjunct Professor at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University. He spent 23 years with Finance Canada, rising to the level of Associate Deputy Minister. He served as Senior Vice President and Chief Economist for the TD Bank. Uh, Don Drummond joins me now. Don, thanks for doing this today. P very much appreciate it. You're welcome. Your outline, which you uh, illustrated uh, very well in a piece today, um, of what is ahead if we forge ahead with this this path, is it's pretty sobering. Well, I guess my principal message I'm trying to get ahead is, can we just talk about this? I, I, I have this fear that we're one day going to wake up and there's going to be a budget before us that's going to lay out all where the country is going to go over the next 10 years. And I was thinking, I didn't have the information to judge that. I didn't know this was coming. 
the mandate of the Liberals in 2015 was to balance the budget by 2019. That didn't quite happen. The mandate in 2019 was to keep the debt-to-GDP ratio at 30%, and no fault of theirs. That got blown seriously off course by the pandemic. But we don't have a mandate. We don't know where the intention is. And as you said, um, nothing has costed in the speech from the throne. I think in a sense you almost gave them too much credit. You said the plans are there, and I said, well, not really. Uh, the dreams. really no the... detail whatsoever how they would do a national farmer care program. And, and there's kind of a laugh line, and it says we'll uh, join any provinces willing. And uh, you, Let's talk about the provinces that are willing. None of them have their hand up right at the moment. Mm. So I don't, is that a plan? I <laughs> That seems to be very vague. I don't even know how you would spend money on that, given that there's not agreement. And I suspect any province would say, first, we want the $27 billion. We just asked for the Canada Health Transfer before we talk any new initiatives. So, again, we don't even know. It, uh, it, you know again, and just picking that one, sorry, to pick on that one thing that says we're going to speed up the progress. Well, the, the progress is zero right at the moment. So we'd have to check with somebody in the world of physics how you speed up to zero. I think <laughs> it's still zero, but i kind of forgotten my physics. Well, so, I mean, and I want to get into some of the concerns you lay out here, but just before I do, would these concerns as a broad base, would they be your view regardless of circumstances or is this because of where we are right now, because of COVID, because of the spending we've had to do that in this particular moment, these kind of ideas become not so great in your mind? Well, I would have been concerned even before it, but, you know, we were at around that 30% debt-to-GDP ratio, the deficits weren't that large. We were in a pretty comfortable fiscal space and with extremely low interest rates. Yeah, sure, we had scope to do some things. I would say we don't have scope to spend $100 billion a year. But now we get a big question before us, and it's not just an economic and fiscal question. It's a moral question. Who should pay for the economic cost of addressing COVID-19? Because if in addition to the debt incurred by COVID-19, we add more, we are making a deliberate decision. We're going to bundle up all those costs. We're going to put them on the side and we're going to stick them to the next generation. And is that fair to do it? Is it appropriate? They're probably going to have their own challenges. They might have another pandemic. They could have a downturn. They've got to support all of us aging baby boomers because uh, there's not going to be that many working poor do we want to do that? I, th- I think we should. Uh, it's legitimate. We should be having a discussion about that. Uh, that was the, it was there before, but as usual with crises and pandemics, it's, it's amplified, exaggerated, has brought more to the to the attention that we really need to decide where we want to go. And given the circumstances, and that our debt to GDP ratio is going to cross fifty percent, our deficit is going to come close to four hundred billion. Can we really right now do all these things? And of course. We're, uh, we're almost talking like the book is closed in the pandemic. Unfortunately, it's not, it's not closing the last chapter. Maybe it's not even the last chapter. It's not over yet. We're still very much focused on that, and the economy is still much in tatters in, in many sectors. So maybe we should just cool it down a little bit and see how that plays and what resources are required to get us through that. Well, you, you have laid out four possible outcomes uh, ranging from uncomfortable to nearly apocalyptic. Let's 
if we can quickly go through, try to keep it not too numbers heavy because I don't think anyone's keeping track with a pencil right now in their calculator. But um, the, the first one is that they do a number of these things, um, don't spend their brains out, but that they, they do a number of these programs. Uh, they, as they've said, they're not going to increase taxes on the back of the Canadians right now. Uh, we see a little bit of growth in our GDP, but we also see interest rates go up over the next few years. Um, but you have said, as I understand that one, that for this to work, we would have to have a surplus. Um, yeah, so if, if they went back to the objective they set out when they ran the election campaign in 2019, in other words, a debt to GDP ratio of 30%, we would need very large surpluses over the next 10 years. And since no one's talking like that, so I think we can throw that one out of the window. We got thrown off course in the pandemic. We're not going to get back on that course we were running deficits about $25 billion. So the second one just says, okay, let's absorb the economic impact and the fiscal impact of COVID. That's not much we can do about, but let's try to get back to the $25 billion deficits. That would get the debt burden down a little bit from its peak today. Not very much. It would keep it very high. But it doesn't leave much room for new spending initiatives. And that's why I look at another scenario. Well, let's pretend uh, we're going to generate $50 billion deficits. Now we're, we basically lock in the debt burden at that bloated level of today. That's ex- explicitly saying we're going to pass all the cost of reacting to COVID-19 on to future generations. We're not going to absorb any of it ourselves, even though it's occurring in our time period. And that seems to me very risky. And also, I still don't think it would allow you to do all the speech from the throne initiatives. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don Drummond has pointed out that there are some real concerns here. Don Drummond, a noted economist, and in case you're wondering if he is a liberal basher or someone, well, Paul Martin, who's the former prime minister, once said he was, that Don was one of the most principled and imaginative public servants with whom I've ever worked. So not a liberal basher, just someone who knows his way around some numbers. And uh, Don, just before the break, we're going through the four possibilities that you've laid out here for what could happen. The first one is simply that um, we kind of have to have uh, revenue um, or um, surpluses, pardon me, I just couldn't think of the word, or else we're going to run into trouble. The second one is that we're going to not have that and we're going to ladle or saddle our kids and their kids with huge debts. And deficits. The third one that you were talking about, which is difficult as well, this part, I, I start to get into the really, it becomes very tangible. You're saying that if we get into the third one where we have even higher deficits and higher debts, we're looking at 11.4 cents on the tax dollar just being chewed up by paying interest on the tax. That's a huge amount of tax money that is just being flushed down the toilet. Yeah, and obviously that's money that can't go to meet uh, current needs of people. It can't be transferred to the problems of the health care. It uh, can't go for our national defense, all these security and the like. Now, keep, keep in mind, given the history you read, I was there in 1995. At 1.33 cents of every revenue dollar went to interest on the public debt. Um, people were only getting back uh, 67 cents on the dollar that that's tough but that's that's the reason why you don't want to walk into a situation and you want to buy some insurance but then i look at a fourth scenario and i thought Mm. i think if you really wanted to do all the speech from the throne and you wanted to do them in a fulsome manner i think you might be looking at a hundred billion dollar deficits and then we'd be back to the kind of debt burden we did have in the mid-1990s perhaps with lower interest rates so for now for now but, but we don't know and as you're implying uh 
that may happen for five years, six years, may happen for 10 years, but will it happen forever? And, of course, nobody knows the answer to it, and that's why it gets the question, well, shouldn't you kind of built in some insurance against that? Because it might happen. Uh, your house probably not going to burn down, but it might burn down, so you put insurance on that. Shouldn't you put some insurance so we don't walk ourselves back to a fiscal crisis? And I, I would argue, yes, we should. But your your point, especially with the fourth option of the $100 billion a year in deficit spending uh, brings in two issues. One is we're now talking about 14 and a half cents on the dollar, uh, on the tax dollar going just to pay the interest. That's not chipping away at the principal at all. So that is in perpetuity. If you want to start chipping away at the principal, it's much more than that. Um, and the second thing is you say that that would also increase spending of, of as much as 4% a year. Let me read a quote that you said that you wrote. Increases of 4% a year in spending or more are, quote, too fraught with risks to consider further. Why? Well, I, I'd already had that rate of spending growth, which actually doesn't seem to be all that large. Uh, running a hundred billion dollar deficit per year, you've got the debt to GDP ratio going back to this peak that we experienced in the 1990s, and I'm still not sure that would encompass all the initiatives the government might want to do. But I, I just don't even want to think about running deficits a hundred above a hundred billion or debt higher than we hit in 1995. That's just inviting too many bad things to happen. And so at that point, I said, no, no, I, I'm not going to do a fifth scenario. Don't. Sometimes you'd better just stick your head in the sand. I don't even want to think about that one. The, the fourth one's bad enough. I'll just leave it there. Some will say, listening to this, uh, some who are very much in favor of what the Thrones Reach promised, that you are a pessimist, that your projections are based on worst case scenarios. What do you say to that? Well, uh I'll go along with part of it. Um, I, I won't go along with the worst case scenarios because trust me, in about two seconds, if you want, I could say how things could work out worse than that. <laughs> I, I definitely didn't depict them the most rosy outcome, but abs- things could work out better. Um, I mean, Yoga Berra always said it bet about everything. It's hard to do predictions, especially about the future. I don't know. You don't know. Nobody <laughs> knows. And if they claim they know, uh, check back on them 10 years and I guarantee they'll be wrong. Maybe it'll all work out well. Maybe we'll have pretty good economic growth, which will bring in lots of revenues, and maybe interest rates will stay down for a time. But my point is, that's bucking history for a long time. Yeah, we've had low interest rates for quite some time right now, particularly low since the financial crisis of 2008. But going back further than that, interest rates have been a lot higher than that, and maybe they'll come back. I would point as well, it's not just a question of guessing where interest rates, we actually need interest rates to go up. Um, If anybody's fortunate enough to be a net saver position, you know why. There is no incentive whatsoever to save. We need savings to generate an investment in the economy. We have such powerful incentives to borrow, to dissave, and that's why our economy, as is most of the world, is awash in debt on the household, the corporate, and the government sector. The economy is not made to go along at a half a point of interest rates forever, not even remotely covering the rate of, inf- of inflation. So we actually should hope that they go up to some degree. And I'm not saying going back to where they were in the 1980s, but to some degree. And then you start to get into these fiscal binds and those interest uh, payments as a share of the revenue start to dr- go up again. 
It is uh, it is a, a very interesting read. People can find it online. Look in, just look up Don Drummond, and uh, there's a piece that he wrote, and it's on. In the, I think it was was it the Globe today or the Post? I can't even remember where uh, I saw it today. Them. You're right, both. Both of them. Okay, there you go. Both. And, uh, uh, you CD, can read. CD How is the original site for the publication? There you go. Uh, t- take a read. Um, maybe have a stiff drink handy because uh, you may need it. Not your writing. Your writing was great. It's just what's in it was uh, a little sobering. Don, really appreciate the time today. Thank hey, you're you for welcome. this. Bye. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, um, we want programs in this country. No one's arguing against programs, but when Don lays out where these programs could lead and with the costs and everything else, maybe we don't go for every single thing we want because the possibilities there, they can be frightening. They can be frightening. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. I picked up a book the other day. No real reason, except that it caught my eye and it looked like it was an awful lot of fun or it would be an awful lot of fun. And I was correct. It was the story of something called Action Park. Now, maybe you heard of Action Park. I'd never heard of it. I'm guessing you haven't heard of it either. It was in New Jersey. It was big in the 1980s. Uh, In the 80s, a New Jersey businessman built what? turned out to be the craziest, most dangerous, most outrageous theme park in the world. And it was a huge hit, but it was so wild that Action Park, as it was named, quickly earned the nickname of Traction Park or Class Action Park. Anyway, uh, I finished the book in a day, during which there were times I was laughing so hard at the stories in it that my wife thought something was wrong with me. The author of the book is the son of the man who created the park. His name is Andy Mulvihill. He joins us now. Andy, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Hey, man, it's so great to be on your show. I love the enthusiasm. And I have to say, you're not like the only guy that read the book quick and got accused of being a crazy man reading it. I've heard that from so many folks. Well, it is, it is, uh, you know, I write for a living. I work for a newspaper as well. It is difficult to write funny. So congratulations on this because this book is hilarious, most of it anyway, and it is, uh, it is really well done. That say, that said, Andy, uh, you did have one huge advantage in writing this, and that is that what you were writing about is real because I don't think this would have worked as fiction because nobody would have thought that it was plausible. You know, it's funny, uh, as people have covered the Action Park story and all that has occurred over the years, sometimes people, like, make up some stories, embellish stuff. I'm like, guys, you don't have to do that, because <laughs> what actually happened is incredible. Just tell the truth, man. And that that's what I try to do in the book, is just tell the truth about what happened. And, you know, I explore the, the crazy things, the fun things, but also the kind of the the, the bad things and, the, and the, the, the tough things, you know, I've tried to be very honest. Well, uh, so for people who don't know, um, and we'll get into the park, but it, as I say, the difficulty in believing that it could be real, a park where you have people breaking bones, where lifeguards are rescuing 10 people a day from a wave pool, where there are rides that seem designed to lead to chaos. In 2020, in the litigious world we live in now, there's just no possible way that such a thing could exist. Oh, no way. I mean, Action Park was so unique. You know, it was a place where in one day you could drive a race car, a speedboat. You could go down a bobsled run. You could go and jump off a bungee tower. You could do uh, flips off a cliff. You could go swing on a Tarzan swing, go off a surf hill, a, a water slide with a jump. 
you know, it was unique. It was the participation part where you controlled the action. And with that came risks. And um, it's something that I don't know that anyone could get by today with the regulators. But I don't know that anyone would have the gumption that my father did to pull off a place like that. Well, and all the things that you just said, all those rides and all the things, you could probably pitch those today at Disney World or somewhere else. But the amount of controls and safety measures and everything else that would be put on them is kind of the opposite of of what your dad had. There, there was a huge element of risk and of choosing to take that risk if you chose to at Action Park. You know, what my dad did is he took a novel approach to uh, an amusement park. I didn't even know that you would call it an amusement park. What he did is he took the idea of skiing, where if you want to go down the bunny hill and go slow, you can. But if you want to take have a real thrill and go up to the top and go down the steeps and the deep, it's fun, but it can be risky. You can get hurt. You can even get killed. And so he <laughs> took that idea and applied it to an amusement park. And I tell you, People came like mad for the place. They loved the place. Not Some say, oh, they came because they, they wanted to get a chance to get really hurt. They didn't. It was because the rides were so much fun. They were so thrilling. It was awesome. You mentioned about the, the comparison of a bunny hill versus a four black diamond or whatever. I mean, this thing started as a ski resort, but how did it, how did it morph from a ski resort into what it became? So my dad lent some money to some guys that had a ski area, and they couldn't pay him, so they gave him the keys. So he says, oh, I got the ski area. It's open four months a year. That's great. But the rest of the time, I'm paying taxes, insurance. I have this big lodge and parking lot. How do I monetize it? So he, he started to fiddle with the idea of putting some rides in. And we were so close to like the metropolitan area. It was only an hour away. If he did something special, something unique, something great, he thought people would come. And so he tinkered with some rides, some ideas, the Alpine slide, a skateboard park. Some of it worked, some of it didn't. But he kept on adding stuff, and he created a, a very, very unique place that people just absolutely loved. So the, the first thing he did, and at any point along the way, Andy, just correct me if I get something wrong, because, again, I read the book in a day. So my, you know, my research is not that in-depth. It was, it was blasting through it. But the first ride that he created was what you call the Alpine ride. It was, we had it up here at Blue Mountain in Collingwood. It was, we called it the great slide ride at one point, similar. Um, you get on a little sled, you've got a brake that you can apply or not and fly down the track. Um, the difference between the one that was up here that I always thought was rather safe and yours was, it seemed, reading the book anyway, that down there, the goal was to go as fast as humanly possible, which could actually launch you right off the track. You know, I think I think there were probably two things that were different about our Alpine slide compared to others. I mean, as you said, there's Alpine slides that have been built around the country. We were one of the first, and there's two things I think that happened for us. Number one is I'm sure that my dad said to the German designers, I want the fastest, craziest, most intense <laughs> ride that you can do. I'm sure he said that. And the second thing is, we didn't have nice Canadians on Blue Mountain going down our ride. We had crazy New Yorkers and folks from Jersey whose objective was to smash into the guy in front of them. I mean, they just, anything they could do to be disruptive, to be like chaotic, that was just, you know, that was the crowd we had. And it, it created for some pretty tremendously exciting times, but also it was a little difficult. But man, we did our best. 
there is a line in the book about the asbestos track that this was built on. I think it was that ride where you, you describe one guy who got going so fast in a speedo that he nearly essentially ground his own butt right off his body, which is quite an image. No, it was funny because, you know, most of these Alpine flies are <laughs> up at ski mountains where they don't have water parks. So people are like fully clothed with jeans and sweatshirts and whatnot. But people would go from the water ice to this thing in their bathing suits and their skin would be exposed. <laughs> and so it was kind of like, hey, we gave a lot. We used to call it the Action Park Tattoo. We were giving tattoos out before they were popular. <laughs> where, man, if you leaned on the slide, you would just get your skin rubbed right off and have a scar. With, with some with a staffer at the bottom with a bucket of iodine spraying something on you if you had got road rash on the way down. That's that's very true, man. We should have had <laughs> what I'm always thinking we should have done. And I'm thinking where I'm speaking to a guy up in Canada. We should have had the crazy Canadian uh, ski jumpers or ski racers. They should have endorsed the place. That would have been yeah, like no awesome. kidding. We could have got Canadians to come down. When, okay, so you get that one started. That that obviously shows your dad that there is an appetite for this. So he starts to expand a little further. Did he? Uh, did he ask? Uh, and I think I know the answer. But engineers or physicists or ride designers or anybody to be involved in this, or was it just him sitting there with a cocktail napkin drawing something out and saying, "Let's go." You got to understand this. Is like back in the seventies, early eighties, there, there really were no water parks. Very few, and they were in their infancy. So. If you wanted to, like, build water water rides, you had to, like, design them yourself or find some crazy guy in the middle of nowhere. I mean, today, if I want to build a water park, I could go to, like, six guys and have engineered water slides. There was none of that back then. So he was, like, you know, cutting new ground. He's really an American pioneer. And, you know, it was trial and error, you know. Some things we got right, some things we didn't. But I tell you, my dad's whole goal, was not to do something that was average, not to do something that's been seen before. He wanted to give people an experience that just blew their mind. And I tell you what, I, I adored it. I adored it. I had, you know, my, my God, my book, he's the, he's the man in it. I praise, I praise him. But it was because he was doing something unique. And I tell you what, the people loved it. They came in droves. Well, and when you say unique and that he wanted to try something, I, I don't think there probably was a ride that he created um, that was more unique. Uh, he created a looping water slide. I can't off the top of my head remember the name that he gave it, but it was you go down the hill and then near the bottom it does a full 360 loop. Um, you were the first human to attempt this ride, correct? That, that After it had been done on a mannequin? You know, it was called the Cannonball Loop and it was like, it was where we had to go. It was a water slide that was actually kind of in a, a tube which did a whole 360-degree inverted loop, which, I mean, any sport. They do it with motorcycles. Tommy Hawk, I think, tried to do it with a skateboard, uh, even snowmobiles. Um, but to do it with a water slide was just an insane idea. And I think my dad worked with this guy, Dick Crowell, who was out of California. And he had this foam, this, like, padding that we put in the tubes so that it was, like, soft. And we built the thing. And I don't know, I wasn't there when they put the, send the mannequin down and they came out without its head. Maybe I wouldn't have gone down, but I was the first human to go down. And I never would have gone down if I didn't have my hockey equipment with me. I was a hockey player growing up. And so I went down the thing in my hockey equipment. And then it was not pleasurable. It was a ride to survive, not to enjoy. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, and I think the person after you, if I recall correctly, broke his nose and lost his two front teeth. So, you know, it was, yeah, it was something that uh, was, you know, it would ne- not necessarily have met the safety standards of, of today. Um, well, you know, look, we, we were trying to figure it out, and um, we didn't always get it right, and we tried to be safe, but we made some mistakes, um, and we shut that down pretty quickly when we realized it didn't work right. Uh, there are so many other rides, and I'm going to get into a couple of them. But I, uh, please, please, because this is the part I, I was—I was almost um, in pain laughing at the story about the first test of the Bailey Ball. Could you t- tell the story of what the Bailey Ball was and, and how the first test went? So the Bailey Ball again—it was like some random guy. My, I don't know where my dad found this guy. He'd never built an amusement park ride in his life, and he had this idea. My father says, "Come on, come up to the place. We'll try to build it." And so this guy shows up. And the idea was you put a person inside a ball that is inside another ball with like ball bearings between the two balls. And he'd be in a chair inside the inner ball. And the idea is that you would stay kind of upright as the ball would go down a track down the mountain. Because if you went straight down the mountain with no track, it would get going too fast. You know, you could get killed. So they would build a track that you would ride down. So this guy shows up and he, he you know, he starts building a track out of, plumbing pipe he buys from the local plumbing store using plumbing glue and he like starts building it he tests it out a little bit it works goes a little higher up the mountain back and forth it doesn't work he redoes it and he's building and building and building it and he's testing the whole time with sandbags finally he gets the thing done it looks like it's going to work and so we're going to do the big test and like my father he's like has no patience he's like we're opening the thing tomorrow. Get the state inspector up. So the state inspector shows up, but he's late. It's like late in the afternoon. And it was the first really hot day of the summer. So we got this in, the inspector there, and we got this guy getting in this ball. It's going to go down the track. And the ball is really looks great. It's going down the track. It's working perfect. But what happens is the PVC heats up in the heat, and it just falls apart. And the ball... <laughs> like gets loose and doesn't go back and forth down the mountain. It goes straight down the mountain. It almost <laughs> runs over the state inspector. He dives out of the way. I mean, it was unbelievable. And it goes down through the parking lot. I don't know how it didn't hit any cars across the highway. It didn't hit any cars into a swamp. It was, and the guy, we pulled the guy out. He didn't know where he was. He was like almost passed out, but he lived. He was all right. Um, that ride we didn't end up building. It just it didn't. That one didn't quite turn out the right way, so we passed. Well, probably a wise, <laughs> yeah. Probably a wise move. Probably a wise move. You know, I read somewhere someone described. There's been different descriptions of your dad. Someone described him as the anti Walt Disney. Um, someone also described him as a sadistic PT Barnum. I don't think sadistic was fair. Um, you know, honestly, he sounds to me a whole lot more than anything like Bill Veck. I don't know if you know who Bill Veck is, but the guy who was the legendary baseball owner who when he owned the St. Louis Browns, brought up Eddie Geidel, the, the little person to try and bat and did a bunch of other crazy things in baseball. It just, it sounds like your dad would do anything to make a buck and make people happy. You know, he, he was, he was interested in people. He was interested in life. He loved new ideas. You know, the end result, the, the money wasn't the objective. You know, he was, he was so, he was a very smart guy, very driven. And he felt that he didn't succeed in one thing he'd move on to the other. So that gave him like, you know, this invincibility where he would try something and if it failed, it was okay. When you have that kind of confidence, you can take those risks. I don't have it. I mean, when I look back on what he did, I can't believe the risks that he took. Uh, (laughs) It was really pretty amazing. But he, 
it was all about like creating something awesome and fun and thrilling and unique and different. That was the, that was the greatness in it. And he, ah, if you made some money, great. If you didn't, uh, it's all right. All right. So one of the other things, and I want to go through a few of these really quickly. He came up with the idea of making a wave pool. Uh, but this was not exactly your sort of gentle swishing wave pool you might see at most amusement parks. Now, we were one of the first in the country. And so I don't know that the guys that sold it to us had it perfected, but we had some pretty big waves. And uh, you, know, you said earlier <laughs> on that we would pull out 10 people in a day. Man, you're wrong. We would pull out 100 people in a day on a busy day. It was crazy, man. Absolutely <laughs> crazy. And you worked there. You were one of the lifeguards. Oh, my God. I worked there from the age of like 14 to 22. So I lived and breathed it. And uh, I was I had my hands in it and all and uh, with a lot of fun times, but a lot of like, you know, there were a couple of tragic times that were tough to deal with. But, you know, we did the best we could. Hey, when you take New Yorkers, as my friend Smokovich said, like landlubbers and you throw them in the water, you know, unfortunately, sometimes things happen. Well, you mentioned a few other rides. You had uh, motorboats that, and these were not like Disney motorboats that were on a track or something. These were free motorboats um, that was in a pond filled with snakes and snapping turtles. That's a good one. Uh, you had you had go karts that, if you took the governor off, could go ninety miles an hour, which is just it's just hilarious. Um, you had a, a surf ride that you would slide down the hill that you could get massive air on and then crash appropriately. Oh, what am I forgetting? What are the other rides that I've forgotten about that uh, that people would never the, believe. The, bun- the bungee jump was cool because we were the first guys to actually, it was like a safe ride, Action Park put in a safe ride because we had airbags underneath this tower that you would jump off of. And I'll never forget we had this um, Live at Five show and, and this guy Winthrop, some like real preppy guy was up there shooting it and they wanted him to jump off and he was too nervous to jump off. And my little brother was working the ride. And my father said, you got to get the guy to jump. So we get it on the air and the guy wouldn't jump. So ultimately my brother ended up pushing the guy off. The ride. <laughs> and, they, and the guy screamed like a little girl. And what's so funny about it is like live in the studio, so it's like live five, they show this guy screaming like a little girl and they cut back to the studio and the guys all knew him in the studio and they're laughing so hard. They're falling off the chairs, rolling on the floor. It was bedlam. I mean, that was action park. It was bedlam, man. The, we laugh about this, and, and it is it is a hilarious book, and it's a hilarious story. That said, people, I mean, people did get hurt when you when you create this kind of risk and this kind of opportunity. There, there were people who did end up getting hurt. Yeah, you know, um, there were. You think about it. There was like ten to fifteen thousand people there on a busy weekend uh, for a day, and if you go to like a small town of 10, 15,000 people on say the 4th of July, when people are active, you go to like the, the hospital, the ER, you'll see that stuff happens. People get hurt. So, you know, when you get them to be really active in a place like action park, you know, God, 99.9% of the time people were fine, but occasionally something odd would happen. And unfortunately we had some non swimmers that would go in the water and we like would pull out hundreds a couple times we failed and it was like, I can't tell you how it wasn't like a statistics for me. I lived it. It was horrible. It was a horrible, horrible thing seeing the families and um, you know, but unfortunately, you know, the Jersey shore, I think in 2017, there's 34 water related deaths, you know, they don't close the beach, you know, life goes on. It was tough, man. It was really tough. 
The, there were, it was, it the, was the final total when that park finally closed, was it six people who had died? Yeah, we had had, um, I think it was, yeah, we had, I don't think it was five. And then we had three drownings, um, which were tough. And then we had a kid that went down the Alpine fly when it was closed, when it was raining and, and the brakes wouldn't work. He shouldn't have done that, but he had an unfortunate accident of hitting his head on a rock. It was really terrible. I feel horrible for the family. And then, um, then a guy got electrocuted, which was really odd. We don't even know how it all happened. We did the research and no one ever really figured it out. We might've even been lightning that got him, but no, come in. You have no idea. It was so bad. It was so, so bad. We're trying to like have fun with people. Yeah. We're, it's reckless abandon to a degree, but we try to be safe. And then we had this stuff happen. It was, it was horrible. But people, and again, I mean, it's very difficult in 2020 to imagine this because anything that happens now, somebody's going to file a lawsuit. Did no, people must have sued back then, even though it wasn't as commonplace. You know, they did. And uh, my father decided that the premiums and the deductibles that he had to pay were so high that he would just self-insure, uh, which he did. And he got in trouble for it because his landlord was the state of New Jersey. He leased some land. If it had been anyone else, it would have been a problem, but they indicted him for it. But what he did is he self-insured and we would defend cases. And if we lost, we'd pay the premium just out of cash flow. And it worked very well for quite some time. But what we got very good at is we got very good at, like, if someone got hurt, we'd investigate and we'd interview them. And it's amazing how nine out of ten times the person would say, oh, I was fooling around. I wasn't paying attention. I didn't follow the rules. I wanted to jump on my friend's head. And so that served us well when it, if, if it ever came to court. But often we would settle. We'd settle out. If we were wrong, if we knew we were wrong, we'd call We'd offer our money. And we'd say, look, we, we made a mistake. We'll pay your expenses. We'll pay you some damages. And so we managed it. And uh, that's how we got by for a long time. Andy, what ultimately happened to the place? Because it's not open now. It's certainly oh. not in the form that it was. No, no, no. I mean, it's not even It's not there anymore. Uh, you know, in 94, 95, the lawsuits were piling up a little bit. And we had done some real estate deals that were rough. So we had to sell it. Uh, you know, there's economic distress. We, we had a refinance and it didn't work out well. So ultimately, my dad sold it. But the thing that's funny about it is the guy that the guys at bottom are a Canadian company, Intrawest, who have resorts all over the uh, in Canada. And they had it for 10 years, but then they ran into economic troubles and we bought it back, which is crazy. And we had it for a few years. We, we brought the brand back, but ultimately we ended up selling out. And the guys that uh, bought it, they, they took out most of the rides. It's not even what it was. It's a different place. I can uh, I can only highly, highly, highly recommend the book. It's called Action Park, Fast Times, Wild Rides, and the Untold Story of America's Most Dangerous Amusement Park. Uh, one of the funniest books I've read in a long, long time, uh, written by Andy Mulvihill, who has been joining us. Andy, so much. thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate the time today. This was fun. Oh, man, Scott, you asked the right questions. We had a good time. Awesome. Get the book, you know, this COVID thing. It'll let you release from that. It'll let you, like, escape it. I promise you it'll be a fun time, but don't read it in public because people will look at you and say you're crazy because you'll be laughing like a maniac. I, I'm not going to disagree with you. You're absolutely right. Andy, thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. You bet, Scott. Bye-bye. Uh, it is uh, it, it is worth getting. If you need to have a good laugh, and who doesn't these days, um, 
the stories in there are truly, truly hilarious, a lot of them, and truly unbelievable. Let me bring Ben in for a second here. Ben's back at the studio. There is, first of all, I don't know if that kind of place, if that still existed. If that place still existed, would you go do those rides or would you say, no, thanks, I don't need to take that risk? I would absolutely go. I would just be careful. Like, I'd be looking at the stuff and be like, no, I can make that or that's nuts. I like my legs. You know, I'd be, I'd be, uh, I'd be picking and choosing what I do and don't do. Uh, again, you got to read the book and I, I've not made any money on this. I'm not being paid to say that it is a hilarious read because it is just 40 years later, roughly give or take, cause it ended in 93, 94, he said. Um, but when it started 40 years ago, it is a different world we live in now. And there is no chance you could open a theme park or an amusement park or whatever you want to call it like this today. There is no chance. And that story of the Bailey ball, it was a Canadian guy, apparently Bailey, don't know a first name, who made this thing that broke free of its track. <laughs> it looked like the Sputnik satellite running loose down the hill. Um, anyway, yeah. It's called Action Park. Let me retell you the name one more time. Action Park. Um, fast times, wild rides, and the untold story of America's most dangerous amusement park. If you're looking for something really fun to read, the Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.